Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. In a departure from all that's sacred, the usual two guests, but today slotted into a single interview about the long-term health of the capitalist system. We'll be hearing from Aaron Beninoff, a partisan of the deep structural illness point of view, and Seth Ackerman, who doesn't share Aaron's diagnosis. By the way, apologies for any background noise you may hear. I'm visiting my in-law's semi-rural house in Massachusetts, and it often seems that the country is noisier than the city. Somebody's always mowing a lawn or cutting wood or something. For the last couple of decades, New Left Review has been publishing articles diagnosing the capitalist system as suffering from chronic overcapacity, declining profitability, sluggish growth, and a generalized stagnation. They're not alone in this, of course. Monthly Review has long made similar arguments, though from a different theoretical perspective. And there's a long heritage of catastrophism in the Marxist tradition. But on this topic, NLR is a real standout. The current strand began with a 1998 paper by the historian Robert Brenner, The Economics of Global Turbulence, an article that impressed and influenced many. Brenner focused on the decline in manufacturing in particular. As Europe and Japan finally caught up to the U.S. in the decades after World War II, capitalist competition became something of a zero-sum game that seemed to produce mostly losers, even if a string of negatives doesn't usually add up to zero. Other NLR contributors have continued writing variations on this theme, among them the sociologist Aaron Beninoff. In a recent article posted in the Jacobin magazine website, one of that publication's editors, Seth Ackerman, files a vigorous dissent from the line. Here are the two of them to have it out, in a comradely, high-minded way, of course. I mentioned a long tradition of catastrophism in Marxist and other left-wing thought. The falling rate of profit, for example, was slated to doom capitalism, and it would be left to the good guys to pick up the wreckage. That's a generous assumption. It's just as likely, or maybe even more so, that some nasty sorts could prosecute their nastiness over the wreckage and the ensuing social chaos. That aside, these analyses are often as much about wish fulfillment as they are about the rigorous evaluation of evidence. I'm reminded of Stanley Aronowitz and William DeFazio, both post-work partisans, arguing in their 1995 book The Jobless Future that work was over. Capitalists didn't need human toilers anymore. Since the book was published, total formal employment in the U.S. is up by more than a third, and if you adjust for the aging of the population, a larger proportion of adults is working for pay than were 28 years ago. I should say that I'm also suspicious of arguments that hold the problem with capitalism to be that it's just not producing enough of its charms. Most of the time, the system is more or less working as it should, and that's the problem. It's alienating, polarizing, and destructive. It places the accumulation of money far ahead of the satisfaction of human need. Those are the problems, not that it's suffering from systemic anemia. But enough of me. Both of the guests use the term Schumpeterian, an adjective derived from the name of the economist Joseph Schumpeter. He saw capitalism as proceeding in long waves, driven by technological innovation and the resulting investment. The relevance to this argument is that, unlike the golden age of the post-World War II decades, we're in a long, wavy rut. Okay, here are, in order of appearance, Aaron Beninoff and Seth Ackerman. Let's start with you, Aaron. You know, I've just been struck uh, reading your stuff that the point of comparison is typically with the 1950 to 73 period, the 30 or 23 glorious years, as the French say. But it really was an anomaly in the history of capitalism following 15 years of depression and war. But U.S. growth rates now aren't all that different from the last third of the 19th century. If we look at the employment population ratio for the U.S. now adjusted for population aging, it's just a hair below its all-time high April 2000. Employers have been moaning about tight labor markets. So I just don't see this all as the stuff of crisis. It's not a golden age. We live in a fallen world. It also doesn't seem like a form of chronic illness. So really, how sick is capitalism by historical standards? That's a great question. And it's certainly true that, yeah, when you compare the growth rate over the last 40 years or something to the growth rate from 1870 to 1910, it's not that different in most of the rich countries. I think there's two two issues with that comparison. One is that, as I said in my book on automation, I think that the period of the last three decades of the 19th century was a period of really intense class struggle. It was a period of 
major conflict, the rise of socialism, endemic poverty and unemployment. And, you know, it was a very turbulent time. And I think that all of the reform efforts that gave rise to the golden age, as exceptional as it was, were, were reactions to the difficulties that capitalism experienced in that period. So I think if you want to call it normal capitalism, that's totally fine. But then you should recognize that normal capitalism for a lot of people is a crisis and, and, and that in the past, that level of normal capitalism has generated pretty intense social struggle. Now, of course, we haven't seen over the last 40 years intense social struggle. We've really seen the opposite. But I think things have started to change in the last 10 years. Theories like Brenner's or mine are attempts to kind of explain why that's happening. Now, Seth, you have an argument in your piece about how uh, this view of stagnation, overcapacity, this sense of pervasive crisis is really politically essential in drawing a difference between reformists and revolutionaries. Uh, could you lay out that uh, argument? Well, this is uh, an argument that goes back to the revisionist controversy within Marxism in the 1890s, 1910s, 1900s. Aaron makes a good point that you know normal capitalism has often involved really intense degree of class struggle and often some apocalyptic perceptions of what you know capitalism is and what it means uh, but that was precisely what happened with the outbreak of the, the revisionist controversy in the in the 1890s which was started when Edward Bernstein who was a uh, an important leading figure in the in the German and European socialist movements who was a protege of Marx and Engels issued a sort of a rethinking where he argued that in large part he based his his rethinking where he advocated for a, a reformist path to socialism. He based a lot of that case on economic trends and specifically the idea that crises were becoming less and less apocalyptic and the system was stabilizing and the ups and downs were becoming less catastrophic. At the time, you know, you, you read about the revisionist controversy, uh, when you actually read the texts, maybe you, you might, from today's perspective, you know, be expecting arguments about the nature of the state or something. And there was a lot of that. But really, the bulk of it was people arguing about whether capitalism was headed for the kinds of massive turbulence, again, that it had been experiencing in the 1870s, 1880s. Bernstein's point was that by the time you get to the 1890s and, and the 1900s, you can see this kind of stabilization happening where growth rates increased a bit during the, the pre-World War One Belle Epoque era. And the premise of the idea that there was this connection that if capitalism reached a certain degree of stability, it didn't have to necessarily be a, a degree of stability where it was nirvana. But uh, if, it, if it reached a certain degree of stability, then that fundamentally altered the argument about revolutionary politics. That premise was basically accepted by all sides. And, and the, the argument then was about the facts, you know, has capitalism, in fact, stabilized in the way that Bernstein claimed. Robert Brenner uh, really very much stands in the tradition of that kind of argument within Marxist crisis theory. Uh, he's not the only one, you know, in the, in the 20th, 21st century um, who sort of continued that tradition. You know, he's argued quite clearly a lot of his those who've um, who've picked up and agreed with his uh, his theory have also established this idea that uh, if you buy into this uh, overcapacity thesis, uh, global stagnation thesis, that it has strong implications against – it's not clear exactly to me exa to what degree Brenner or those who follow him would separate – how exactly they separate the reformists from the revolutionary approach in practical terms. I guess that's a hard question to answer in general. But clearly Brenner sees this as a major dividing line in politics within socialist politics – and that his theory grounds the revolutionary position. Of course, uh, we had a, a socialist revolution in 1917. Britain had a depression in the 1920s. The U.S. and the rest of the world had one in the 1930s. So capitalism wasn't exactly stable and hunky-dory a few decades after Bernstein was writing. When the depression happened, first when the war happened, and then when the depression happened, that was taken by the more orthodox Marxists as a, as a proof that, that Bernstein had sort of spoken too soon. But of course, that premise or that idea that he had that those catastrophic events argued against Bernstein also sort of depended on an expectation that the travails of capitalism would lead to the triumph of socialism. And obviously, in the long run, it didn't work out quite that way. Aaron, how essential is some notion, as you put it in, um, I think, your most recent piece in New Left Review, that capitalism is running out of steam? How essential is that to your politics? Is what Seth is pointing to, is that uh, relevant to uh, your worldview? If capitalism is not running out of steam, what does that do for us? 
Well, I think here, you know, I'd like to respond to some more specific points and kind of build on a question you raised about the aftermath of revisionist controversy and the fact that it was followed by not a stabilization of the system, but two world wars and an interdepression. Actually, if you look at Robert Brenner's work and try to situate it with respect to the Marxist tradition, I would just say that Seth gets the genealogy here wrong in a really important way. Because in my view, Brenner is part of a group of post-war Marxists who were something more like neo-Schumpeterians. The whole point of it was that they were theorizing those long waves that we're talking about. They're theorizing this alternation between periods of um, capitalist high growth and capacities to um, accept reforms and for working class uh, organizations to win gains through collaboration, uh, class collaboration type strategies. And that those kind of periods alternate with periods of capitalist, like low growth, slow growth, um, heightened competition and conflict, and, you know, a changing character of um, what kind of working class politics look like and how they can achieve success. And we can definitely talk about that more. I just want to point out that I think that among the long wave theorists, what distinguishes Brenner is that I think that he discovered secular stagnation in the course of his work. But um, I think it's very important to say that he arrived at that view through a confrontation with the length and persistence of the downturn. But that comes out of this larger tradition that he's a part of, which I think of as a kind of neo-Schumpeterian Marxism. You can also just think of it as long wave theory. All the long wave theorists of which Brenner is a part are trying to kind of place us with respect to those longer cycles. How, how essential is crisis to your politics? Stagnation is essential. That idea of living in a trough of a wave and that that has implications for politics, that's just something that we can recognize around us right now. Like, look what's happening with the UAW, right? We've lived through 40 years of long-term uh, working-class defeat. That defeat hasn't only been at the hands of an onslaught of capitalists, though I think it's well noted. And a big part of that is is the observation, which I don't think um, Seth talks about at all in his piece, that a big feature of the last 40 years has been a major rise in the capital share of income and a decline in the labor share of income. And that basically, you know, working class unions and social democratic parties all around the world have organized that defeat. They haven't fought against it. They've organized and um, participated in it. That has a lot to do with the loss of legitimacy of those organs. And it also explains why in the contemporary period, we're seeing not only a kind of rising curve of social unrest, but also efforts on the part of political groups and groups of workers kind of break free of those pre-existing organs and try to find some new forms of organization that would be more combative. And so I think it's hard to understand both the fight for democratic unionism in the UAW and its success, and the fact that it immediately issued in a much more combative stance on the part of the auto workers, without kind of placing it within this long wave perspective. I'm not a long wave theorist. I, I have an idea about why this wave is more of a secular stagnation type wave than the long wave theorists imagined it would be. But I, I do think that these kind of perspectives are pretty essential for understanding not just like my politics, but like the politics of the moment. Seth, any response? First of all, I, I, I agree and I think that it's true that I, this is not an aspect that I uh, talked about a lot in my piece, that there is this um, Schumpeterian long wave aspect of Brenner's work and it does relate to the politics. I think that's a good way of putting it. That, And this is an idea that one hears a lot, not just on the left actually, but you, you, you often hear this idea in sort of from mainstream perspectives that periods of strong growth, booming economy, golden age type conditions are conducive for uh, or at least permissive, more permissive for reform, social democratic, egalitarian types of politics, and periods with slow, slower growth or more, you know, more economic turbulence. That's less the case in Brenner's hands and in the hands of other people who sort of follow his line of thinking. That can be, and I don't want to put words in Brenner's mouth on on this point, but I think anybody who's been on the left in the last, especially since two thousand eight knows that sort of in the in the ambient discourse of the left, there is a, a pretty familiar stock pattern of, of argument that basically stops any discussion of whatever types of reforms you want to discuss with the idea that 
we live in an era of stagnation or of crisis or whatever you want, however you want to put it, and that rules out reforms. The, the system can't give these reforms that you want, that sort of argument, which in my view just doesn't really describe the nature of the, the problem that we're facing. Yeah, I never quite understood that argument because can't you prod the system into doing it? That's what the state can, at least in theory, uh, or has the potential to do. The conceptualization of capitalism in that in that view is one where anything that, that happens is at the um, pleasure of or ultimately at the decision of, of capital. And capital is more willing, is more open handed when growth rates are high, when profits are high. Uh, therefore, you know, any reforms that we have gotten are because it was sort of ultimately acceptable to capital, but it's not acceptable now. I think that really misreads how we got the reforms that we did get. And I, I, I want to say that the Neo-Schumpeterian perspective, which is a legitimate way of seeing the economy and the, and these, the evolution of these cycles, to me misses, especially when you talk about, when you're thinking about the post-war boom and the end of the post-war boom and what's happened since then, there's a lot of talk about, about growth without making an important distinction. Doug sort of alluded to this a little bit at the, at the top of this discussion, that economic growth, the growth of GDP can be divided into two parts, uh, you know, the growth of employment on the one hand and the growth of Productivity, so output per worker, output per hour. And that's a, a really important distinction because if growth, let's say, slows and the, and the, the slowdown is due to a slowdown in employment growth and the result is that there's a lot of people who need jobs, want jobs, but can't find them, then that, first of all, is, a, is just pure waste and, and indicates not like just a clear failure of the system and a failure of public policy. There's no justification for a system that allows a lot of people to be idle when they don't want to be, when they could be sort of contributing to society. And in addition to that, has tremendous uh, effects on the tone of politics and class politics in particular. Obviously, in periods of mass unemployment, the working class is on the defensive in a way, whereas it, it has a much stronger position uh, in periods of, uh, in booming periods. And in that respect, this is sort of the opposite kind of conclusion from the idea that periods of uh, strong growth and uh, and high profits are periods when the ruling class is more willing to give. It's actually sort of the opposite. Periods of strong growth are periods when the nature of the system and the competitive nature of the system means that the capitalists are much more dependent on the working class in the sense of being always short of uh, workers, short of labor. And therefore, it gives workers a, a greater ability to extract concessions that capitalists would not want uh, or would not be willing otherwise to to grant. If the if the slowdown in growth is not about a slowdown in employment, if it's not about high, rising unemployment, lots of people, you know, mass unemployment, people being idle, weak labor uh, labor markets. If it's instead a slowdown that involves a slowdown in the rate of productivity growth, and especially if we're talking about productivity growth in the richest countries, the countries where the level of productivity is already the highest in the world. I think the meaning of that politically and, and economically is completely different and, and a, a little bit ambiguous. Right now, as, as Doug noted, you know, the uh, level of employment in the United States is very, very high. The employment rate is about as high as it's ever been. To the extent that there is a slowdown in growth, it's because the average worker is producing an amount of output that's growing at a slower rate than it did, uh, let's say, you know, in the in the post-war era. But starting from a level that's far, far higher. So, you know, in the in the peak of the golden age, in the like the early 60s, the level of per capita income in the United States was like a third of what it is now in real terms. If you were to take, like, let's say, the uh, forecasts that Robert J. Gordon, you know, who's a source that Aaron has um, has mentioned uh, a bunch of times in his writings, very mainstream macroeconomist with a, with a sort of gloomy interpretation of uh, economic growth and its prospects, uh, given sort of technological realities and the and the the profile of productivity, he had a paper recently where he forecast what he thought the most likely path of uh, labor productivity in the United States is going to be sort of in the long term future, and cast it as a very pessimistic view, which was. I think he said 1.2% per year. So 1.2% per year means that the level of productivity and per capita income doubles in like 60 years, starting from a level that's already three times as high as it was at the peak of the post-war. But it's one thing to talk about productivity in poor countries, let's say, you know, where there's a need to catch up. But the idea that the economy doubling in 60 years instead of tripling uh, in the countries where it's already at its highest level. That is a problem that should be seen as sort of like a focus of an important source of, of political dynamics and that we should take into it. To me, that seems like one of the least important aspects of, of where capitalism is failing. Yeah, we should all have such problems. <laughs> um, Aaron, a response to that? I'm very glad Seth brought that up because I do think that that gets to the 
nub of the issue. And, and just to state my views concisely, I think the point is that the decline in the profit rate that Brenner identified in the 1970s and 80s, his whole profit rate analysis there was about saying that the reasons for this decline in profitability came from a decline in capital productivity. So the additions you can get to income for each additional unit of capital you bring in, uh, not due to a rise in the wage share of income or the labor share of income. It wasn't the success of workers fighting, but this other thing, the fall in capital productivity that was at issue. And Brenner made the argument about the 70s that you know he thought this was due to overcapacity. Once he made that argument, he said that because he thought that countries like Germany and Japan had so much further to go, they hadn't caught up to the U.S. in productivity terms. So that's why he said he couldn't attribute this to, um, to a kind of exhaustion or arrival at the technological frontier. My account is that he put too much emphasis on that argument going forward because over time, and here again, I'm agreeing with Robert Gordon, although more with Dieter Fullrath, saying it's less about product innovations than process innovations, that it's more about deindustrialization and the rise of the service sector than about some general technological exhaustion. But the point is that over the long run, the reason for that declining capital productivity is more to do with declining labor productivity. And that's something we can observe directly. You know, we don't need to try to make an argument based on profit rates. And I also think that that's why most secular stagnationists like Gordon or Fulrath don't, they don't make their argument by reference to profit rates, but they are talking about a vanishing of investment opportunity in that sense. It's just one that we can observe directly in this way. Now, why is that a problem? Yeah, if all we were talking about were a system oscillating between 3% growth and 1% growth and averaging out to two over time, then, you know, I don't see why there would be any reason to complain. I think that that's not an unreasonable argument. But I don't think it captures the reality. And I think that that's where this issue, that um, the rise in the capital share really becomes important. And, and I think it's something that Seth doesn't pay enough attention to. Because the whole point here is that capitalists responded to uh, a decline in their own incomes in the 1970s with falling property rates by starting to make this really intense battle on working class living standards. And, you know, they were obviously more successful in some places than others. But the effect has been to radically transform our institutions, the welfare state, the character of workers insecurity. I mean, certainly we live in a period of high employment right now, but I'm not alone in thinking that that might be a temporary condition. And certainly it's not the record of the last 40 years. It would be a very strange analysis of the period since the 70s to just say, well, everything continued more or less as it was. It was just that the uh, rate of growth of income slowed. And so I think that the issue that we're facing now and that can we actually, through stimulus, raise the productivity growth rate? Because a lot of these kinds of more radical Keynesian uh, solutions depend on the accumulations of debt having that effect of like really raising the growth rate. And I think those things are uh, in question. But the point is that if we did struggle to kind of like increase the rate of investment or transform uh, the structure of the economy, right now, one of the big discussions around these issues is that um, for the past 40 years, efforts to stimulate the economy have generated less and less investment and have just lined elite pockets, right, through stock buybacks, other strategies that are privileged um, increasing the wealth of the elite, uh, their personal wealth um, and their personal spending over investment in like building out the infrastructures of society, constructing, you know, if we're only going to grow at 1% growth, a rational society might say, let's use this to make sure we have enough hospitals in case there's a pandemic. That isn't what happens. Um, and I think that it gets at this exact point, which is that a struggle under these conditions of low productivity growth in a class-based society are really intense struggles over what happens with that small surplus. And so far, it's been very hard, even for the Biden administration, for anyone to really imagine a hard enough struggle that would shift the terms of the class character of society away from elite income and consumption and towards actually investing in the things that we need in order to improve our lives. That was the first part of an interview with Aaron Beninoff, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Syracuse University and frequent contributor to New Left Review. 
and Seth Ackerman, an editor at Jacobin, who has an article contesting the Beninoff-Brenner New Left Review line on that magazine's website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Vampire Empire just out from Big Thief. Another departure for the mandated normal, an additional musical treat, the great Robert Fripp playing about 20 seconds of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, which I nabbed off Instagram. Toya Wilcox, a singer who is also Fripp's wife, is dancing in the background of what looks like someone's kitchen in the video. Robert Fripp. And now on to the second part of my interview with Aaron Beninoff, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Syracuse University and frequent contributor to New Left Review, and Seth Ackerman, an editor at Jacobin. Let's talk a bit about, as they say around New Left Review, the current conjuncture. We have saw recent inflation, quite a surprising inflation to most people. It's, it's ebbing now, but it's not gone. It was caused by the opposite of overcapacity. It showed a productive system that was really stretched to its limit with just-in-time inventories, outsourcing halfway around the globe. Add to that stimmy checks and enforced leisure, which meant that people weren't spending money on restaurants, but instead uh, were spending it on durable goods. We saw profit rates rise, which contradicted the falling rate of profit stories. So it didn't look anything like this image of chronic stagnation. Was just this just some weird quote a, a line from Wallace Stevens: "A blaze of summer straw and winter's nick." Is this just some weird moment that's going to go away, or is there something that this tells us about uh, more structural issues? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I can't predict the future, right? I mean, I do think that in the current moment, there's a lot of talk about what kind of stimulus the economy can bear and where it should be directed. But I, I do think that the dislocations of the COVID era were due to the COVID era. I don't think anyone believes that the breaking down of supply chains and the inability of people to kind of like import all of these things that were being produced abroad were the sign of a long-term transformation in the capacities of the system. It was, a, it was a crisis moment, and it called for really intense and combative measures. I think a really sad feature of the present is obviously that most of the welfare measures that were implemented at that time have really been rolled back. Uh, I don't think we've made any kind of permanent uh, advances through this temporary increase in the generousness of the welfare state. I think there's something to their concern that this might end up being a temporary situation and that the long-term productivity growth rate of the economy probably isn't changing because um, all of the investments in manufacturing, which are great for the U.S.'s military conflicts and chess beating about trade wars and, and whatever other kind of wars with China, I, manufacturing just isn't such a big part of the economy anymore. And even a major stimulus to that sector isn't going to have a huge effect on our productivity rates, growth rates in the economy as a whole. So I think that the, the idea that, you know, stagnation might come back is warranted as a thesis. I think it, I think the fact that it's such a mainstream view and it's influencing a lot of uh, policymakers and 
efforts to think about what the future might look like is also something that we ignore at our peril. I'm trying to attribute this view to Robert Renner is like going into a burning house and trying to find the candle and turn it back over. I mean, you know, these are very widespread mainstream views about the limitations of the future. And I'm not saying that we on the left should feel ourselves limited by them. I, I think that's a longer and more complex story. And we could talk about what kinds of positive projects there could be for the left in this era. But I think I think these are serious issues to think about. Seth, any thoughts on this? Well, I think there's a real slippage in Aaron's argument when he goes from pointing out the concerns from people like Larry Summers or Robert J. Gordon or Blanchard about growth rates, the revival of uh, secular stagnation theory by Larry Summers, which I always thought that his stuff on that was quite um, sensible and he was right about it. But pointing to that as sort of indicating that what Brenner's saying can't be so crazy because look at all these you know very like level-headed people making the same argument. It's not at all the same argument. The whole point of Larry Summers' reintroduction of secular stagnation theory was that there has been inadequate fiscal stimulus, whether you agree with him or not. You know, his, his argument is there's been inadequate fiscal stimulus over the last 30, 40 years because of the population growth trends and, and other sort of long-term structural factors that reduce the natural demand for investment, uh, for private investment. It has forced the burden of adjustment on entirely onto monetary policy. So it's forced interest rates to go down uh, further and further until they eventually got to zero. You know, that's the argument. And his upshot is the government needs to spend lots more money. And when it spends lots more money, it should probably focus on investment, things that will actually increase the, the productive capacity of the economy. And if we do that, that'll work. You can make what you will about that argument. But that's 180 degrees the opposite of what Brenner has always been hammering away at, which is the idea that the so-called stagnation that we've been experiencing is something that cannot be addressed by the government spending more money. Those are two separate arguments that are important to keep separate. If we're talking about the issue of the inflation that we saw in the last few years, my view is that the inflation was almost certainly you know, very temporary and it's going away and it, and it will go away. There are arguments that say that, you know, um, by sensible people like Charles Goodhart, uh, who is, you know, they, they point to sort of long-term demographic trends and the structure of, of population aging and things like that and, and make the argument that the forces that made for secular stagnation in the last few decades are slowly going into reverse and that you're going to start seeing uh, an upswing in the sort of natural rate of demand for investment over time. And that's going to lead to demand pressures and you're going to start getting uh, inflation being a problem again. You know, Maybe that's true. I, I don't really know. I haven't looked into it. But all of this is an important reminder that a big part of the story, and for me, the central part of the story of what happened since the 1970s was, and I know that this is, Brenner vehemently disagrees with this, but you know, a lot of this is about money wages and inflation. The workers' movement in the post-war era became very strong. There was full employment. And there is a natural incompatibility between, not necessarily an absolute incompatibility, but it makes it very difficult to reconcile full employment and stable money. And the, the results of the crisis that happened in the 70s in the value of, of money and, and inflation caused a whole series of huge institutional reorganizations, most clearly observable in, in Europe, but in different ways all over the world, that had a huge effect on all of the, the issues we're talking about, including and especially the issue of the sort of disempowerment of the working class in the last uh, few decades with the, you know, because it became a matter of public policy day in and day out in the central banks to make sure that the rate of job growth didn't get too low, but also didn't get too high. That in recent years has been less of a focus because there was because of secular stagnation, the zero lower bound on interest rates that made them get increasingly worried about employment growth being too slow. But, you know, for most of the last several decades, we have had a deliberate policy objective on the part of the most powerful policy institutions of the rich country governments, the central banks, to target rates of unemployment that were higher, certainly, than, than what was otherwise achievable. And I think without looking at the centrality of that, you can't really understand how we got into a situation with the working class so disempowered, with slower rates of growth, probably with slower rates of productivity growth uh, included. Aaron, Seth raised a point in his piece, um, which also occurred to me as I was reading your stuff. How can you have chronic overcapacity and chronic underinvestment at the same time? Would the excess capacity just rot away with time? This is a good opportunity to reply to something else Seth said about secular stagnation. My explanation of this is just that it does make sense once you realize that we're talking about deindustrialization. We're not just talking about 
We're not talking about what industry looked like in the 19th century or even in the 1950s. We're not talking about a period of industrialization or like a rising share uh, industry share of GDP. We're talking about a sector of the economy that's seeing its share of GDP fall. And that limits the extent to which income growth issues in an increase in the size of the market uh, in industry. And across all of these different fields has resulted in a situation of a slow and persistent exit. That to me isn't that different from what happened in agriculture. If you take a really bird's eye view, of course, in actual fact, it's much more complicated, in part because um, the fate of industry has such huge geopolitical implications that governments intervened in all kinds of ways to try to modify and transform the deindustrialization pathway and also to push the kinds of consequences it had onto other countries by moving currency values around um, or by other forms of state investment or protection. If you think like Brenner that this is a story about the economy as a whole, then it is hard to explain it in terms of overcapacity. But if you think about it in the context of deindustrialization, like deagrarianization, then it's pretty easy to understand how this could happen. And that's why, again, what I what I said is that my view is that, you know, the Brenner story about overcapacity, which I think does apply in the 1970s and 80s, increasingly over time, the reason for low capital productivity is just low labor productivity growth. And that's where the story converges, in my account, more with Baumol and Fulrath than with Gordon. But it's the same basic idea that since the 70s, the growth potential of the economy as given by productivity growth rates have really fallen. And the period of the major increase in women's labor force participation rates and the continued kind of effects of the baby boom, to some extent, hid this by increasing, you know, total hours, the rate of growth of hours. So even if productivity wasn't growing as quickly, working hours were. But now we're at the end of that phase. And the transition to services has become much more extreme over time. I mean, countries like Germany and Japan have have achieved economy-wide productivity growth rates on the order of less than 1% per year over the last 20 years. And these are countries that are now going into population decline. So these are the reasons why I think that there's a long-term problem. And I don't think, I, I don't know what Larry Summers thinks today, but I don't think the explanation that this is just a too high of a savings problem and not a lack of investment opportunities problem uh, makes sense. I mean, the very idea that we need public investment suggests that there's some problem in translating savings into investment that should be interrogated more closely. And I think leads pretty directly into these Gordon slash Fulrath slash me type explanations of why that's the case. So I think that that sets the tone for thinking about the future. And obviously, I think that saying that doesn't mean that we should resign ourselves to a situation of working class income stagnation and, you know, elite rapaciousness and fail to make an adequate transition to the Green New Deal. And that's also why in my work, I've really paid attention to the radicalization of Keynesians and the claim all of a sudden after 70 years that the solution to these problems is not to stimulate consumption, which over the last 70 years has mostly issued in elite income growth rather than more investment, but rather, you know, through a coordinated campaign of public investment. And that's where I've really done a lot to talk about in, in my book I'm writing now, the dangers of technocracy and why we should be supportive of a transition to a public economy while also being skeptical of the capacities of Keynesians to actually turn that economy in a humane direction. The worries about saber rattling are not irrelevant here as well. Keynes did have that bit at the end of the general theory. We talked about the somewhat comprehensive socialization of investment. He was very vague in what he meant on that, but it seemed like it meant elite people like him should take over investment and take it away from the capitalists. But uh, that control of investment angle got lost in all the attention to uh, regulating the business cycle and boosting consumption. Yeah, and that was a very reasonable response, I think, to what happened during the Great Broom. I think it's also, you can't really talk about that without talking about the defeat of working class activity in the immediate aftermath of World War II and the kind of shunting from any relevance of more radical Keynesians, which also happened very quickly. 
the whole point of this is that that version of Keynesianism made Keynesianism really ill-equipped to handle the crises of the 70s. And, you know, the battles for a more radical public economy were lost at that time. And that's that's how we got where we are today. I mean, it's a class story, right? In the end, it is, a you know, the story... Seth was telling about higher unemployment rates since the 1970s and the movements of the central banks. I mean, that is a story about class conflict, right? Seth, in your piece, and this gets too arcane for, for radio, so I don't want to go too much detail about it, but you argue that because we mismeasured depreciation, specifically the U.S. authorities mismeasured depreciation, the capital stock is actually lower than it is, which makes the profit rate higher. So all these stories of uh, a declining rate of profit are uh, the product of misleading statistics. But if that's true, if the profit rate really is higher than we think it is, why aren't investment rates higher than they are? I think there's a pretty straightforward I mean, not necessarily uh, can't be 100% certain that it's true, but there's a pretty straightforward answer to that question. There was a great paper. I'll probably write something about this uh, soon, but there was a great paper recently by a couple of economists at the University of Chicago. Corporate discount rates was the boring title of the paper, but it was on a subject uh, dear to your heart uh, uh, based on you know thinking about Wall Street, the book Wall Street. This is actually a point where I think that there's a real disjunction with the view that says that the to the extent there's been a growth slowdown, it's because firms see fewer investment opportunities. So what these economists did is they went through thousands of uh, transcripts of earnings calls where executives explain to investors, shareholders, asset managers, you know, what they're doing and how what they're thinking. And very often in these calls, the CEOs will explain what they currently use as their hurdle rate of investment, which for some reason, the economists who wrote this paper, they call it the discount rate. What rate of return when they're considering which investment projects to undertake or not undertake uh, is the required return that would uh, convince them to, to go ahead with the project? These economists were not the first people to notice that hurdle rates in, for corporate investment uh, have experienced this very peculiar trajectory because Supposedly, you know, by finance textbook economics, a corporation ought to invest in a, any kind of project that prospectively offers a rate of return that's higher than what the company could get. There are different ways of sort of uh, estimating what your alternative rate of return is. It could be the S&P 500 uh, average rate of return, or it could be some sort of risk-free interest rate plus adding some risk factor or whatever. But the point is that as capital becomes cheaper, which it absolutely has in financial terms over the last 30, 40 years for exactly these secular stagnation kinds of reasons, you know, interest rates have fallen massively, then you should see, uh, and, and real interest rates have also fallen, not just nominal, you should see uh, a decline in the hurdle rate that corporations use. They should say, well, if we can obtain and our our shareholders can get capital at 3% instead of 5% or 6% instead of 9%, then uh, that means that we should invest in projects that have a little bit lower respective rates of return. But that hasn't happened. So there have been surveys going on. Uh, the Duke University has been doing a survey for many, many years uh, of uh, chief financial officers asking them what their hurdle rate is. And the hurdle rate has not moved at all. It's been completely insensitive to the massive decline in interest rates. So what you have is a situation in which increasingly corporations are rejecting prospectively profitable in the sense of being expected to earn rates of return above uh, risk-free rates or alternative uh, opportunities. Increasingly, they're rejecting more and more projects. And what these economists did is they went through the transcripts of these earnings calls and they made a database of what the hurdle rates of these companies were. They traced them over time. And, you know, they found, first of all, that yes, there's been a, a much less than proportional decline in hurdle rates so that the, as capital has gotten cheaper, corporations have not been proportionally more willing to invest. So they asked the question why. And they're a little bit vague about answering that, but they, they're very clear that from the transcripts, um, it's obvious that CFOs believe that shareholders and asset managers like it when they abstain from investing in projects that would nevertheless are expected to be uh, profitable and earn a rate of return above you know alternative uh, opportunities they like it because it signals it's a signal it's a, it signals that these executives are not empire building wasting money on you know grandiose projects they're returning funds to the owners or 
all the, all this kind of ideology that's been suffused the the financial markets since the since the 1980s. Doug wrote about it extensively in Wall Street, and it's a, a process that really has, along with, I'd say, along with the um, the revolution in macroeconomic policy, this revolution in in sort of corporate finance and the kind of managerial ideology that's embedded in the institutional structures of corporations. As those two things probably jointly can explain most of the shifts that we've seen, including the decline in in aggregate growth rates. I mean, that's a big statement to make, but um, I think these are big trends that have that have happened. So this, I think, is another example of where the important role of money and finance, which in, where there's a long tradition in Marxism of sort of denigrating the importance of money and, and finance. There's also an alternative tradition of, of you know, emphasizing that it's important. But uh, the idea that these are kind of superficial features of the economy and that the real reality underneath is, you know, the abode of production can often distract us from how centrally important this kind of financial stuff is. That would be my best guess about why investment has been slower than what you'd expect. All right. I can see the clock is running down. So let me ask uh, one final question of both of you. Whenever I talk about growth, I get emails from people who say growth is killing us. We need to degrow. Uh, not necessarily in agreement with that, but uh, you know that is a question these days. So why should we worry about growth? Uh, is it something we should uh, try to get beyond? Uh, Aaron? My idea of a kind of convergence between long wave Marxist theories and secular stagnation theories definitely leads me to a, a view that I think the most radical of the radical Keynesians held, and I think the best of the, of the Marxists also held, which is that the goal isn't just to unfetter the forces of production and imagine that due to some kink in the way that capitalists make investment decisions that a socialist society will just be able to like achieve unheard of growth rates and sail towards the stars. I think if you ask Keynes or Beveridge, like, what's the goal of this whole thing? I think the better Marxists, they would have said, we should do one big glass build out and it should have a real public purpose. You know, like Beveridge said, just like the war really inspired people who were recently unemployed and depressed to get up every morning and do something to defend their families that, you know, we could organize such a public project, but not to make war on foreign people, but rather to um, make war on disease, ignorance, squalor, and poverty. And that that big public project of building out the fixed equipment, the, the equipment and machines that humanity needs, like today looks like building hospitals and schools and all the rest of the things that Beveridge also imagined, which many, many people in the world are massively under-equipped. But it also means in our time, like a big green transition, it means some huge effort to get us off of fossil fuels. And I think however we do that would have to be in line with science. And I, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I have no ability to judge what the proper pathway is to an actually sustainable economy. And I'd rather hear people who do know about that debate it out and, and for people to decide on that basis. But I think I agree with Keynes and Marx and Du Bois and the IWW and everyone else that, you know, the long-term goal is to reduce the savings rate, reduce investment, increase working class consumption, also leisure, and actually get to a world where there's a much lower expectation of growth for the future. But that doesn't mean a world without dynamism, like real human dynamism and innovation across the wider spectrum of human possibilities and not only the economy. So I think that that is a kind of rational version of a, of a degrowth future, but one that requires one last effort to raise the living standards of humanity in line with what's sustainable. And I think that that should be the goal that we're fighting for. Seth, a word to the degrowthers. Um, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, it also occurred to me how there's this, there is an overlap really between this discussion and the, and the degrowth discussion, which has also been going on at the same time in the sense that the nature of what we're talking about depends heavily on this construct, the statistical construct of, of GDP. Whenever we're talking about, we're arguing about stagnation or not stagnation, there's no way to talk about that in a coherent way without using some kind of statistical aggregation. Because obviously, when the economy produces stuff, it produces lots of different kinds of things, lots of different products. And how can you say if we were producing more today than we were last year without aggregating them in some way. And that means you have to add, add up all the monetary values, but then you have to figure out how much uh, inflation there's been. And all of this stuff leads to, by necessity, 
a massive amount of guesswork about qualitative issues regarding products and services and to what extent they should be counted as indicating quantitative growth. And I have always, I think that, you know, it's one thing when you're talking about a poor country, but when you're talking about countries at the, at the frontier of productivity, I get the sense that increasingly you get to a point when you're talking about growth rates of productivity depend on judgments that, you know, statisticians and government agencies do their best, the best job they can and they do good work. But ultimately, more and more, the question of whether we're producing more, whether output is expanding and by how much, I suspect that the, the, the official statistics if we're judging that by the kind of human uh, criteria that all three of us think are important, the official statistics sort of matter less and less. So it becomes less and less crucial to achieve any particular growth rate in countries where the level is already as high as it is in the rich countries. But the problem is that capitalism doesn't systemically live well with low growth rates necessarily. Well, I don't know. You know, Or does it? If you go back to like 1970, uh, a lot of people were saying that growth rates have been really high and this has led to a revolution of rising expectations and, and overcrowding in cities and this is generating revolutionary possibilities. And it's not clear to me that uh, certainly like, you know, if investment grinds to a halt and there's no profits and, and then something's going to break, but th that's really not happening. What's happening is that these things are increasing at a, at a somewhat slower rate. Any comment on that, Aaron? That's my point, is that I think capitalism does have a big problem with, with slow growth that has to do with the class character of the society. The hope for humanity is the hope for a transition to a public investment economy that does the green transition, that, that measures its success in these concrete terms, you know, not abstract growth terms, with the real battle to improve the multiple conditions of social life. But I think that's going to be a big struggle. You know, it's going to be a big struggle. It's going to involve really breaking away from the organizations that have for a long time organized working class defeat in the face of a capitalist onslaught. And that's that's again, like that helps us situate ourselves in the present moment and understand the kind of character of the struggles that are going on and have been increasing over the last 10 years. That was the voice of Aaron Beninoff, assistant professor of sociology at Syracuse University and frequent contributor to New Left Review. We've been listening to him and Seth Ackerman, an editor at Jacobin, who has an article contesting the Beninoff-Brenner New Left Review line on that magazine's website. A few more words on degrowth. I've been doing some programming around the issue, for and against, and reading about it too, and I have to say that the whole argument seems, as economists say, misspecified. Despite its critical stance, it retains the bourgeois focus on quantity and ends up getting stuck on whether we need more stuff to have a civilized, decent life or not, and not what kind of stuff we need or what a decent life would even look like. I know that a lot of degrowthers support qualitative arguments, but such is the hegemony that even with the negative prefix D, we're still letting growth organize our discourse. That aside, there are a lot of parts of the world that do need more stuff, even if ours doesn't. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out this, another track from the Ashley McBride album we heard some of last week, this Cool Little Bars. Till next week, bye. No peace.